0: Welcome to Deep Natter. In this episode, we talk about collaboration and some of the difficulties around bringing in another pair of eyes or another set of hands to help bring our visions to life. And an email from friend of the show, Martin Rotz, sparks a terrific conversation around the importance of objects and the things that we hold dear. Here we go.
1: Yeah, you always promise yourself like a break at this time of year, not to have to work out what's going on next year. But I, I just get impatient, I suppose. So I've already been trying to work out, you know, how do I want to start next year? Um, what sort of films do I want to make next year? What kind of stuff do I want to do? I really want to get more intentional. I feel like for a bunch of reasons, obviously, like this year has been um, up in the air, like lots of changes in my life. So I felt like I just had to survive this year and kind of... Uh, you know get through it with the with the with the right amount of videos done because it's my job and if right. i was going to a day job i wouldn't have an excuse not to do my job um you know to make sure i get a decent book out in january next year so I have all the images for that but i feel like i'm kind of getting back to a stage where i feel settled in a new in a new life now and um even though there's still lots of things to sort of organize at least you know i, I this is starting to feel like home and now i can get back to being really intentional and pushing to develop the stuff I'm doing rather than just tread water with it. So that's kind of nice um, to start thinking like that. It feels like it feels like getting a little bit more control back in my life um, yeah. rather than just trying to, you know, hold my breath to get through a year, which is good.
0: Yeah, you've, yeah. you've spent a lot of time in 2021 reacting to 2021.
1: Yeah, and yeah. I, I a lot of people can relate to that, I'm sure. It's like, it's yeah. Just,
0: yeah, so it's it's got to feel great to to feel like you can take some of that power back and take some of that control back and take some of that purpose and intent and and channel it instead of as it's been this this past year into reacting, it channel it into making new stuff that that you feel proud of.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't know where it goes, but I just uh, you know, I, I, if if I'm not feeling fulfilled, I do I do blame myself because there isn't anyone else to blame, and 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 I've felt for a while that, you know, I'm missing, um, like an intentional edge to my photography, for example. So, so much of what, well, so much of what I do is, is, uh, is, is sort of my own experimentation and, and kind of non-focused photography. It's more reactive. It's whatever I happen to see at any given year or any given day. Mm -hmm. And that's the stuff that goes into the collection books at the beginning of the year, which I'm really proud of. You know, as they come together, I really do like them. But there's no narrative to them and there's no story. And this year, the idea was moving up to this part of the world was to start a personal project, which I started shooting for. Like I have images for this project, but um, I'm realizing it's going to be a long slog to get this done. And it's got nothing to do with me as a photographer, everything to do with the fact that the the people I want to photograph up here are very suspicious of photographers and very suspicious of photographers who come from London. I I, I don't know how much you know about this country, but there's a huge north-south divide in this country where people from London are treated with a lot of suspicion. That's kind of the rich part of the country and the north up here is, has always traditionally been a poorer part of the world. And, and I think like there's, been this, um, there's been this kind of resentment of people who, who come from London who are, who are wealthy and look down on people from the north as lower class somehow. Right. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not from London. This is the irony. I didn't grow up there. I grew up in Africa. I just happened to be there for work the last few years. But because that's the last place I lived, I get lumped in with that category. And so when you come up here with a fancy camera and asked to take people's photographs for a personal project, they're like, what's this really for? What are you really
0: up to? What are you really doing? How are you exploiting me for your own personal gain?
1: Exactly. And it's just a deep rooted ingrained suspicion, which makes me very uncomfortable, because I I don't really want to do work with people who don't want it. You know, I, I want people to to uh, go, oh, you're going to take photographs of me and then give me those photographs for free where normally people pay you a lot of money to do this for them? That sounds amazing. You know, that's, that's, that's how I like to do things with people. Right. But if I feel I've got to talk anyone into anything, I just want to run away because I, I, I don't want to try and convince you to want sure,
0: this. Sure, 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 sure.
1: Um, and so I think what I'm doing now is I'm going, okay, I'll, I will try and keep that ticking along with a much longer timeframe in my head now, but I need something else. I need to... I need to sink my teeth into something that I can cover some ground with quickly to feel like I'm, I'm practicing this more narrative sort of portrait photography, people focused stuff. I don't, I don't want to wait 10 years to finish a project. Right, 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 I'm happy to do it for that one, but I want to do something next year that I can start and finish in a year to say I'm, I'm, I'm learning. Otherwise I'm learning too slowly for me. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things. uh, No, go ahead. No, it's just what it's, it's one of the things I really want to change about what's going on for me at the moment.
0: Well, and I would imagine that because you are, I mean, without spoiling too much about this project, because you were a part of that world and, and can speak to that knowledgeably and authentically, I would imagine that's even accelerated the timeline of how long it's going to take versus if you, if you couldn't speak to that, or if you didn't have that background, it would take even longer. I would imagine. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, If they would even speak to you. You know?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I just, I just underestimated it. You know, you never mm. know going into something. And again, you can have all the photography skills in the world. It's, it's people stuff now. It's got nothing yeah. to do with yeah. my camera. It's, it's sitting over tables with people for coffee, trying to explain what you're doing and watching their faces go, there's something that's suspicious about this. And then them go away and think about it and ghost you and never get back to you. And, and, and then have to meet somebody else who's their friend. And then you talk to them and they're like, oh, so-and-so said something about this, but I'm not sure what this is about. And then you explain it to them and they get it and they try and explain it to the other person. And then the community talks about it a bit, but they hold you at a distance. It's just this whole, like, for someone like me who's an introvert, like that's scary stuff. Right. Like we're, you have to really put yourself out there and, and, and be the topic of conversation. Who's this weird photographer who keeps asking us all for photographs? We don't really know where he's going to publish these. Because I can't tell them because I don't know, you right. know, which does sound suspect, but this is, this is what it takes.
0: One of the things that I remember uh, talking to Dan Milner about was he carries printed, he calls them field guides, uh, with him everywhere he goes, so that when he meets somebody new, it's not in the abstract. When he's trying to explain what he's doing, he can, he can take out this physical... Book or or magazine or whatever it is that he happens to have with him, and and show them and let them go have a look and and see where he's coming from, what he's trying to do. And he 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 said that quite often when they can see that that's what I'm trying to do, rather than just hear it from me, that's what makes the difference. That's what 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 helps to get them uh, able to wrap their head around it and and realize that I'm not just putting this stuff online for a, for a quick like or a quick follow. That it is a long term well-thought-out, purpose-driven project. And I wonder if that might help in some way for you, even if it's just you're bringing around your your collections to show that you are putting things in print, that it's not just this online, hyper-quick, hyper-buck-making kind of endeavor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have shown people stuff digitally, but you're right, I haven't done it with prints, and that might be a really good idea, actually, doing something physical might be a really good way to do it.
0: Mm hmm. Especially with such an older part of the world that you're in with with dealing with people who may not be as technically savvy as you are or as as people maybe are in London. Yeah. But everybody knows what a book is. Right. So yeah. if yeah. you can show that to them, maybe that communicates the almost the ethos of that project in a different way.
1: It's a, like printed portfolio argument, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've never done it because I suppose most of my career I was a product photographer and most products are sold online. So people yeah. didn't care seeing a printed portfolio. They just wanted to see images would work online. So I never invested in it, but maybe it's a good thing to do to sort of pull together 30, 40 images that show who I am as a photographer to have in those situations and go, this is physically, this is me. This is what I do. Um, yeah. That's, I don't think that we, it can
0: hurt you at all. I think it can only help.
1: I mean, the reason I got the one photograph that I have got, uh, the the one person I managed to do a portrait with was because of my written book, ironically, Mm,
0: mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: because a friend of hers, who's an artist in the area, picked the book up and, and, and absolutely loves it. And she's bought 10 copies and is giving them to all her friends. So I met her initially the first time, this first subject I sat with, and she was quite suspicious, I think. And then this friend who'd read my book was talking about it and, oh, this book's changed my life and blah, 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 blah. And then she's like, okay, well, yeah, maybe let's do this. And that, that, that actually potentially tipped it over. Hmm. So it's like whatever, whatever it takes. Just, I think people just need to know you're a credible human being with some integrity and they can trust you. Absolutely. There's a few ways to get there. It's just you've got to find the way to do that, I think. And that's, that's tricky. Um, and just putting to, putting to bed those fears of mine about being seen as somebody who doesn't have integrity and, and perceiving that on my end as some sort of rejection. Because right. at the end of the day, they don't know me. Like, it's not a rejection. They're no. just suspicious themselves. Yes. And that's, they're not that's rejecting funny. you. No, they, how could they? They don't know right. who I am. Right. It's, but, but I do have those knee jerk things. Like I walk away from meetings where it's like, oh, I can tell this isn't going to happen. They're, they're really not sure about me as if like I've been rejected and I'm a bad human being. And I have to talk to myself and go, grow up. You know what this is? Like yeah. it's not, it's not that it's just, it's just they're not sure and they're scared and that's okay. That, that doesn't mean I'm scary. That means they're scared. Like, cause I'm not scary. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's not
0: taking it personally. The nature of this project, if there was, um, an exploitation, you're exploiting thoughts and beliefs and ideologies that are core to who many people are. So I would imagine there is an, there's an additional layer of, you know, fear or trepidation because this is not just documenting me as a person. This is how I fit into the ideological world that, that in many ways sort of represents me, if that makes sense
1: yeah definitely i mean it's 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 exposing ideas or beliefs that people have, and i think I think people are quite nervous about that because they do know that, especially with the internet, being connected to the internet like I am,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think that people are worried about being shamed for things that they believe. Yeah. If I make if I make a big deal of what their worldview is, you know, that, that it could be ridiculed or put up online. And, and I think people like their, especially in this country, people are very private about their politics. They're very private mm. about their their beliefs. They don't like talking about them because they feel like they're being exposed and have to answer to. I don't know, like like hyper intellectuals on the other end of the country who will judge right. them for it, or make that, or belittle them, or make them feel stupid. So I think that's where a lot of the suspicion comes from. They don't know my intention because I don't know my intention because I don't go into a documentary photography project with answers. I go in with questions, so I don't know where it ends up. I just I just let that unfold, so I can't give them the answer, nor would I want to, because if I nail something down, it, it, it means I can't change right. as I go along. And if I nailed it down, took those photographs, I would feel that I had to stick to whatever that initial conclusion is, even if I find it was wrong, because I told a bunch of people that's what it was. And I took the photographs with them under those assumptions, Right. and then I would be betraying them. So I have to keep it open-ended. But of course, that's what people find difficult to, to trust, because why should they? Because they don't know what I would end up saying. You know? right.
0: and, it, and I would imagine coming into it saying, I don't really know what this is going to be yet. There, there, there might be a reaction like, well, how can you not know what this is when you're here asking me for my participation? How, do, how does those square? So that makes me even more suspicious that, that what you're telling me may end up changing and becoming something else.
1: Or that I'm lying and hiding it and just sure. saying, yeah, sure, sure, I don't want to tell you. I mean, it could be, you don't know me. You, you could assume that's what I'm doing. And it's, yeah, it's difficult. It's really hard. I think, uh, I just feel like I need some quick wins towards me- more meaningful photography for me. And that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for. I don't mind keeping the long-term stuff going. I want to. It's important to me. But I, I need some, I need to just set up something in York for a day and mm-hmm. just go, look free portraits, this address, just come, you know, and just do a bunch of that in a day and then meet people and then find some interesting people in there and go, hey, you all seem to wear tweed waistcoats when you're walking around the streets. If you're part of something, okay, let's get all your people and come in, let's do you as a group and then do that. And see where that leads, you know, just these things are like, I can definitely do a bunch of work in a day because I've got all this really nice gear. You know, I've got this whole bag of skills um, and, and know how when it comes to this sort of photography and I've probably taken, I don't know, 10 portraits this year. I mean, done portrait shoots with 10 people. That's it. Right. Like it just doesn't feel like, and that's nothing to do with me. It's to do with access. It's only access at this point. But of course that's the hard part of documentary,
0: isn't it? It's really tough. Yeah. I mean, I, I, some would argue that's, that's maybe the hardest part. Yeah. you know that once once you get in a room with someone that that muscle memory and that skill set and your aesthetics and all that kind of stuff kind of take over but you're right i mean getting in that room getting that meeting getting a connection with someone that's that's where you know that's what separates you know not to be cliche but the snapshots from the great shots right absolutely
1: I, I almost thought about getting a PA of some sort this year, like mm. hiring somebody to do that outreach for me and to set up appointments and do the kind of communication legwork stuff, um, because I'm just not very good at it. I, I yeah. find it quite intimidating. So somebody who just knew how to do that, who was easier, good at sending emails and getting on the phone and and doing the ask, um, right. Because I think there's also something about asking on behalf of somebody else that's easier as well, rather than asking for yourself. Like, I think I could do that for somebody else. I find it more difficult to do it for myself, ironically. Like, if there was a photographer who I really believed in, I would be very happy to get on the phone for them and say, hey, you know, um, Dan Winters really wants to take a portrait with you. I'll sing his praises all day. He's brilliant. Look at his work. Like, you really want to say yes to this. But I could never say that for myself, you know? (laughs)
0: Because don't go look weird. at my work, whatever you do. Go yeah, yeah, look exactly. at Dan's work. exactly.
1: Isn't that weird? Like I can I yeah. happily do that for somebody else, but I really struggle to do it for myself. Um, it's the same way like when I'm making uh, little documentaries with other photographers. I always tell them, like, don't promote yourself at all in this. Just tell me your story because I'm going to show off for you in the intro and in the outro, like mm-hmm. I, I will happily do and I'll do a better job than you because I won't be self deprecating. I won't pull any punches about how good you are, what you do. And I will, I will be honest and I'll I'll put your work in glowing terms. That's why I came to you and it would be much stronger coming from me than it will from you. So I, 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 yeah, I think that's probably what I need. you almost need your, um, in South Africa you have this thing called a praise singer. Um, so basically, like, even when they opened Parliament, uh, they, they used to do, and that when the president it's from Zulu culture, and when the president would come in, he was from, the previous president was from Zulu culture. Um, the praise singer would come in ahead of them, dressed in traditional dress, you know, like impala skin and headdress and all the rest of it, like yelling in Zulu about all this guy's achievements and oh, wow. who, he, who he was, and, how, it's like, it's, and it's lots of pageantry. It's like half a dance, half a kind of yelled tribal chant kind of thing, and it's this guy, is amazing, you know that. That's how they come in, and then of course the president would come after, him. and that's a tradition going back generations in tribal culture. When the chief entered, he had his praise singer going first. It's like um, we watched uh, a knight's tale the other night. It's like Paul Bettany's character,
0: right? You know, right, right, telling the tale the of, of Heath Ledger. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The protector of Italian virginity, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> enforcer of our Lord God, you know, the kind of thing. Like having someone to do that for you so you don't have to do it for yourself and then set up those appointments. That's kind of what you need, isn't it? Like, and then you could just go in and do the work because I'm confident on the backside of doing the work that people will be very happy with what they get because I'm confident in my skill set. Right. It's just on the front end trying to get those doors open, I find really, really difficult.
0: You know? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's getting back to that be your own town crier. And that's where yeah. we that's where yeah. we fail. That's where we stumble at, uh, at the yeah. very least
1: you, okay. you still struggle with the ask.
0: Uh, I struggle reason. with the ask on, uh, yeah, I struggle with the ask for podcasting on, on who to talk to. And then I, I struggle with the ask in terms of, of, as we've talked about several times, support and, and pricing and, you know, mm-hmm. here's this thing, you know, it, in fact, somebody wrote both of us and one of their comments to me was, you need to get an agent and, and just let the agent deal with, you know, the promotion and, and pricing and, and where the stuff appears and you just make the stuff, let, let somebody else deal with the, you know, the Mm -hmm. business side of it. Yeah. But, and, and while I agree with that to a certain extent, if I do outsource that, then I don't ever learn to deal with it. I don't ever learn to get through it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Because I'm just staving it off to someone else.
1: I wouldn't mind that for myself. I mean, I I do want to work at it, but I also know it is a limitation of mine. I'm good at some things and not good at others. And I can work to get better at something like that, but I may never be very good at it. And if it would hold back the work that I'm doing and I could pay someone else to do it, I don't feel bad about that really. It would just be finding the right person and uh, being less of a control freak.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great question is, is, is there the right person for you? Because at the end of the day, you are, you are so connected to, what you do and how it's perceived and how it gets done, could you relinquish enough control to allow someone to step in and do those things for you?
1: It's something I've thought a lot about. I thought about it in the editing space as well, because obviously it would help a lot if I could just film and hand the video editing off to somebody. Um, But I really struggle with that. I struggle with the idea of handing that over because so much of that for me is half of, the storytelling, how you pace and edit something. And I probably could explain to somebody what I wanted and they're all, they're just good enough that they can straight away see what I'm doing and do a better job of it than me, but keep the tone the same. But it is a trust thing for me, I think, that I need to get over. I mean, that's the other side of it, isn't it? We say like, we don't want to hand it off to somebody because we want to get good at ourselves, but maybe I need to hand it off to somebody to get better at trusting people. Right. Maybe that's an important thing to have or grow as, as a human being, because it's not something I'm good at really. Um, I, I have been a one man band for too long.
0: And, and is it, is it that you, I mean, what's, what is the fear there? Is the fear that they're not going to, that someone else won't deliver to your standards or is the fear that, that, that they will somehow get or take credit for your efforts? Like what, what's, what do you think is at the, at the core of that for you?
1: Oh, I don't mind the credit thing at all. In fact, it's more to do with, yeah, it's one is the quality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because obviously when you hire somebody, you, you, there's, you can't do enough tests with them to know if they're going to nail it every time. And what happens when you've spent hours filming something and they've done like a week of editing on it and send it back to you and you need to post it and it's just not good? right then 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 i would have got it right first time because i know what i'm after but now i've got to work with somebody and go through rounds of changes which will actually add more time not less time to my editing process to have to supervise somebody you don't know if it will turn into that or not um that's the one the other thing is that they would they would try and impose too much of their aesthetic on it and it would change my aesthetic too much like can you find somebody who can read what you want to do and 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 serve you as a client right? or are you going to find somebody who's like, yeah, but I think it should actually be this way. And they keep trying to sneak that in yep. where you're yep. being clear about your brief. Um, that's also a problem. I yeah. mean, if honestly, if they did what I do and kept the tone the same, but did a better job than me at it, I would happily obviously credit them as the editor and everything and, and sing their praises. I don't mind sharing the credit for that as like a, as like a collaboration thing. But it's those first two. You can't change the tone because you think you've got a better way to do stuff because that's subjective. It's not better. It's just you think it's better. It's and just, I, yeah, I, you
0: injecting your yeah. aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: have an aesthetic and I want that aesthetic in there. You can improve that, but you can't change it. And then um, because it's a choice and right. also, yeah, and the quality thing. You have to maintain certain standards. And, and, and you know, I'm not, I'm not the best in the world, but you, you have to do what I you can't take a dip. It has, you to know be. what you That's want though. Yeah.
0: yeah. It doesn't matter that you're not the best in the world. That's why you're looking for someone to bring in, but there has to be, there has to be a collaboration with the understanding that it is your brand and your aesthetic. You can't just look for someone with X number of skills or X type of skills. There has to be an understanding. There has to be a relationship there that you can both kind of see the, each other's side of, I would think.
1: It's. I mean, you can imagine trying to hand over your podcast editing to somebody.
0: Oh, drive me crazy! Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean,
1: it's it's you. You could just be recording stuff all day, every day, and sending it off to an editor who cuts it all together and posts online. But, but there's there are lots of particular things. You have a very rich sound to your podcast that you work hard at. You know how to EQ everything. You know what. Limited kind of effects you want to apply to fatten out the sound, you also know how to compress so it sounds the way you want, but you also know the the pacing you want. you know where to chop out pieces of conversation, what to lose, what to keep, where, right. where to create a bit more space, how the music comes in and out, what music to choose it's a lot to explain to somebody and to trust them with.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right, and you know I, I would love to collaborate with someone, especially where my skills where I see my skills lacking, you know, like I can do very basic things in DaVinci Resolve and you have been instrumental in helping me kind of figure out the basic things that I can do. But if I wanted to do something, you know, with, and, and I'm thinking about some of these things for next year with multiple cameras and, and, you know, how to sync all of that up and how do I shoot it? Do I just, do I just start them all running at the same time? And then how do I cut that together to make it interesting? Would I bring in somebody else in that case? Yeah, maybe for the first couple, so that I could I could look over someone's shoulder and and see how to do something, you know so so that I could then adapt that to what I want to my own aesthetic or my own sort of rhythm moving forward. But it would be very hard for me to just turn something over to someone's sight unseen, especially when when I don't really know what I want that, and we keep coming back to that word style. To be moving forward, I, I know I I have an idea of how I want it to feel, but I don't know that I could articulate that to you. You know, the same with like the book reviews. You know, I've got this list of of books, some of my favorite books that I'd like to do overview slash flip through kind of things. So I end up doing these little tests and and trying to string enough of those successful tests together into something that's that's cohesive and go, oh yeah, that's kind of what I'm after. But I'm in that lab mode, I'm in that experimentation mode of of trying things out. And video is such a new area for me that everything feels like a hurdle to overcome because it's not my, my arena. It's not my, my forte in the least.
1: But yeah, I mean, having somebody on board to do that for you, I mean, might be the way to go. Like you say, at least initially, so you can pick up how to do it yourself. Cause I, I get the feeling with you, that you are a very, you want to know how to do it yourself. Oh yeah. you, you you like to tinker, you like to sort of know all the skills and be able to kind of uh, like do everything yourself. So, I mean, maybe it's just an initial thing where you where you get somebody who can, who can produce something great out the box on day yeah. one, but you can also pick up the skills necessary to replicate into the future.
0: And it's not just creative stuff. It, it's, you know, if we have plumbers, electricians, you know, yeah. contractors in the house, like one of the first things I will say is, look, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. Do you mind? Or is it okay if I'm in the room with you watching how you do some of these things? And most people, I think I've only had one person that, that really kind of wanted to be left alone, but everybody else, I think it's, it's such a breath of fresh air that many clients for them don't want to know anything about it. You're just the worker. You're the help. Go get it done. Come up when you're ready for your check. And I'm not that way. I want to be hands on. I want to ask questions. Well, you know, what is this? How are you doing this? Why, why would you do it that way? And, you know, I'm pretty good at reading people. So if I, if I overstep, then I'll hang back. But most people have been all too happy to share their knowledge and share what they know. And, and again, it's that, it's that idea of having someone take an interest in another human being. Somebody is taking an interest in what I do I've been doing this for 35 years maybe some of my joy maybe some of my excitement maybe some of my curiosity has left and now here's this pair of fresh eyes that come in well that that kind of jump starts me a little bit too as as the performer of this work you know so I I love doing it I love asking questions and I have learned an extraordinary amount from from just the people that we've had in the house doing things because it's it's in my wheelhouse that idea of learning is is sort of core to who i am
1: and your fascination with people i mean that's that's yeah. why your Blue is the color project is going to be amazing because you don't need anything else to be able to do a and like a, a world-class project out of that you've got all the audio skills you've got the natural curiosity and you're really interested in people and you read them and interview them really well so it's it's all it's all there in the bag ready to go yeah it's good
0: did, did you happen to see uh, can we switch gears for a minute yeah did you happen to see the email that we got from Martin Rotz? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about that for a minute? Because I think it yeah. it, it kind of dovetails into a, a little bit of this. So yeah. we got an email from Martin Rotz, who, uh, if you've listened Friend to this show. show, yeah, if you've listened to this, you've heard us talk about him. He is a, a fabulous person. He's an incredible photographer. He's he's innovative and curious, and and he's always doing something new. Please go check out Martin Rots. Uh, also, look I at just his got magazine. His, uh,
1: yeah, I just got his latest, *March and Rock*. Did by you? The way, oh my god, it's really so cool. good. And it's it and it's so also good. like he's done kind of bifolded pages inside, which just it's it's a super cool layout. It's really. I can't really cool.
0: wait. So I can't it wait. It's on its way, so I can't wait. Uh, but he shared uh, this book project with us from a guy called. Uh, I'm going to probably butcher all of this pronunciation, so please help me. Ton Grote, would that be Grote? G R O T E. There's probably a, a rolling of the R's that I'm missing in there. Uh, anyway, the project is called Einhoven Suig 56. And I'm probably butchering that too. So apologies, Tan and Martin. Um, but, probably Tan uh,
1: Grotta, I would imagine. Grotta?
0: Okay. Grotte. Yeah, I Grotte. would imagine. All right. Yeah. Apologies, Tan. Really, I'm, I'm, I'm shit at these kinds of pronunciations. Um, but the description of the book, when the mother of photographer Ton. Grotte or Grotte? Grotte.
1: Yeah. And the, uh, book, the book will probably be pronounced uh, Eindhoven so weg. Wech.
0: Wech. Wech. Yeah. Eindhoven so weg. Okay. I'll, Eindhoven so weg. I'll try that. Uh, anyway, when Tan's parents died in 2007, his father stayed behind in a large house, their parental home where his parents lived since 1969. And he grew up uh, with his brother and sister. Uh, Eindhoven so weg. No? Yes? Close?
1: Pretty close, man. Yeah. Although I'm trying to, I'm probably trying to do an Afrikaans pronunciation of Dutch, which I'll probably get shot for, but I mean, it's the closest I can get you. Yeah.
0: Anyway, 56, uh, a house full of memories and dreams. When his father started to clean up, Tan decided to photograph all the loose items his parents owned. Teapots, old cameras, power strips, glasses, and a worn out football. Treasured things they grew up with and the objects his parents used. Everything was recorded. The result is a photo archive of more than 5,000 photos. Of which two thousand two hundred and sixty-two made it into the book, and I wonder what the significance of that particular number is for Tan or his parents. Um, I showed this to Adrian, and she's like, "Oh my god, I love this! I yeah. love this!" And it's just this this catalog, uh, effectively, of his parents' life, and and it got me thinking about the objects and and the the things that make us up as as. Uh, what gets left behind. Um, and I just thought it was really interesting, like to the point where I would love to talk to Tan. I don't know if Tan, uh, uh, speaks English, uh, would be willing to have a conversation. Um, if, if not, maybe Martin could intervene as an interpreter. Um, but God, I have so many questions about this work and about what it represents about the objects that, that we, hold on to. You know, I'm, uh, you had to de- make some decisions around objects that you wanted to, to take with you to this new life. Um, when I moved from California to the East Coast, I had to make decisions about objects, what I'd kept, what I didn't. And I ended up letting go of enormous amount of stuff, some of which I really miss and a few things I really regret leaving behind. But it seemed right at the time. Um, what do you think of this?
1: I love it. You know you know what it immediately reminded me of, uh, which I know you're familiar with as well, is Lee John Phillips, the Shed Project.
0: Oh sure. Yeah, sure. Where he's drawing every little thing that his grandfather had, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's just like it's this way to remember things and, and sort mm-hmm. of capture things, which I think is lovely. So Lee John Phillips is an illustrator. And he's got this, uh, he calls it the shed project and he's got on his website, it just says, my grandfather Handel Jones passed away in 1994. My grandmother Myrtle has treated his tool shed as a mausoleum ever since. I'm in the process of creating an illustrated inventory of the entire contents and work to this set of rules. One, if the item can be picked up and doesn't crumble if rubbed, draw it. Two, if the packet container is or has been opened, empty it, draw the items, replace them and then draw the container full. Three. If the packet or container has not been opened, it will not be and drawn as found. Four. If there are multiples of the same items, draw them all. To date, I've illustrated over eight and a half thousand items and estimate the total over a hundred thousand. And when you go look at the website, you realize he means every nut, bolt, washer, screw, every staple,
0: every nail. (laughs) Just
1: pages and pages and pages. Of the same screw, but multiple times over with the individual scratches on them to as a, as a way to I, I guess honor his grandfather, which I just yeah. think is such a beautiful idea, this kind of really taking in items and, and objects that that obviously mean a lot more than than the object itself because of who it was attached to and who it belonged right. to I, th- I think it 's a really lovely idea,
0: I yeah. love it, yeah. I, uh, I got a package from my stepmother the day before yesterday, and it is uh, this big priority mailbox. I had no idea what was in it. I opened it up, and it's Super 8 movies, dozens of Super 8 mm-hmm. movies from 1968 through the mid-1970s of us, of me with my mother, of me with my grandparents, of... of Uh, The first time we we saw uh, the Harrier, uh, which is this this VTOL jump jet that can take off and land vertically. First time we saw that at a naval air show, my dad filmed it and his jaw was on the floor because this. I mean, imagine somebody born in 1941 seeing a military aircraft fly by and stop in midair and turn and face you. I mean, he just, he didn't know what he, he couldn't explain it. He couldn't, he couldn't reconcile what was happening. And we have this super eight footage of this thing. Um, You know, Christmas time when I was two and three years old and, and I haven't seen most of these in a long time, many of them ever. So we're going to do this big project of going through them systematically and having them converted to, uh, to digital video. And and again, seeing the, the, the people, the objects, the places I lived, the, the things that were within those places that we found important as objects. I'm, I'm so fascinated by that. And I can't wait to, uh, to kind of dive into it.
1: I've been through exactly the same thing in the last few months, because my mom um, had all our family memories, or the vast majority of them in a storage unit in Durban, in South Africa. Mm. And if you've been watching the news, you'll know that um, recently they had a spate of pretty terrible riots and looting. there.
0: lootings and things, yeah.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately they got onto the storage unit where my mom had uh, all our stuff and they Mm. burnt everything. Everything was lost we lost yeah, everything, all the photo albums, all the all the memorabilia, mm. all the toys from when we were kids, everything just went up in smoke, which obviously devastated her. Yeah. But she carries around, because she travels a lot, she carries around the world with her two big plastic containers full of the most precious photos and videos. She can't be without them, she takes them everywhere. And she decided, and sort of regrets that she didn't do this sooner, obviously, to digitize everything and back it up online, so that she can't ever lose it because it's only a physical item. Right. And so she took a bunch of Super 8 movies and other things to, to get them digitized. Um, and I did a bunch of scanning of negatives and slides for her as well and converting those to kind of help her so she's got those digitally on hard drives as well as physically. Mm. And um, one of the, the, the one of the really poignant things that happened was, is I was flicking through these videos so let me go back, there's a line in my book where I'm talking about the fact that my dad left when I was quite young. And I I, I say the line, I, write, I wrote the line something like, I remember him being my hero at that age. And he would come home at the end of the day, it was my favorite part of the day, and he would take me out into the garden and he'd kick a ball around with me and throw me into the air until his arms ached. Right. Like that's what I wrote in the book. And I'm flicking through these Super 8 films, and I don't remember these films like I, I don't remember them, but I cut to a shot. This is in Zimbabwe, probably about 1980. So I would have been about two years old. And there's literally a shot of my dad kicking a ball around with me. Shut up. That then cuts directly to a shot of him throwing me in the air. Shut up. And I'm like, I must have seen this. It must have been in the back of my memory. Menace- it had to
0: have been, Right.
1: Yeah, there's, that's too coincidental. It must have been there. And there was something familiar about it, but I don't consciously remember watching it. That yeah, when would you where, have
0: seen a Super 8 film of those two events? When, that had to be oh, oh, years I mean, when ago. We had,
1: yeah, when we could play stuff like that. I mean, it's been yeah. decades since that was possible even, really. I mean, in, in an average home. And it's it, it was obviously in there. So that like coming back around, I'm like, oh gosh, this is this was lodged away somewhere. And that's why that sentence came out. I didn't put two yeah. and two together, but there it was. And it was such a surreal moment that uh, that came out. It's really, wow. really weird. Wow. But now, now I've I've also got these these videos now on my hard drive. I haven't even watched them all, but just going through every now and again going, Oh gosh, yeah, I remember that house in Chesapeake and Harare. That's so weird and uh two rottweilers francie and tanya that like i haven't thought about you know all this kind of all comes flooding back just looking through these super eight videos and
0: isn't it amazing how little it takes to trigger something massive how little it takes to see or to read or to hear and this flood of memories comes back
1: But also it made me realize what gets lodged away that we don't consciously access. It's in there. You know, it's not even because and then one thing will trigger a flood of other things. Mm -hmm. So the minute I saw that garden, I remember the layout just from seeing a corner of it. I'm like, oh, yeah. And behind that, there's these two stone benches by those pine trees at the bottom. And then then the camera flips around and there they are. I haven't thought about that since I was four years old. Yeah. But it's in there somewhere. You know, it's just it the me- like memories a crazy thing it's really
0: interesting it's incredible i mean i i you know you and i have talked about this more offline than on but i've had this image and and this persona of my father mm. but when i look at when i look at these these videos when i look at some of the photos that were in there i was an incredibly happy child and he's in those mm-hmm. photos yeah but at some point you know, and I've said this before, at some point it changed and I had to cast him as the villain. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a bit revisionist on my part, because if you look at the source material, which in this case, it doesn't lie, it's, it's, it's us. Yeah. It paints a very different picture of what our relationship was like, at least at that time. You know, and then to talk to my stepmother about it, to talk to Linda and, and for her to, to fill in some of the gaps that I'm missing in my own memory, there's a lot to process there that, that, that I have either through omission or, or willfully to, to support some other alternative narrative changed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we all do it. I mean, I, I think I definitely have a, we all have a tainted view of our of our childhood and our parents and everything else, don't we? I mean, because it's, it's never as black and white. There are no heroes and villains in real life. Yeah. It's always, we're all a mix of all of it. And I guess it's easier to tell ourselves a story to work things through sometimes to put people in boxes. But yeah, you're right. Then you do access the original material, like the source material. You're like, oh, it's more complicated than that.
0: Right. <laughs> Yeah you know? I, I guess I don't have this figured out just yet.
1: Yeah yeah exactly. Maybe Maybe my casting of my, my, my
0: neglectful father
1: is actually more to do with the fact that I needed him to be that. Cause that lets me off the hook for being rejected somehow.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you know, hello therapist. Can we schedule yeah, yeah, something yeah, yeah, for yeah. next week? Yeah. You know, it's. Can we, can we
1: watch some super eight movies together and have a cry? <laughs> You're <right> with
0: that? <laughs> I'm bringing a projector and a box of Kleenex. What can yeah. you do for me? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's so wonderful because you, you know, we, I think our, our brains, you know, we have to let go of so many of these older things to make room for the new things for whatever reason, many of us do anyway. But gosh, when you go back and you see those things and you go, oh my gosh, look at that. I didn't remember that, or I didn't remember it that way, but there it is. So obviously I'm in the wrong.
1: Well, it's, it's, I always think about it like it, it's there's a point where you're growing up and it usually happens, I reckon, somewhere in your 20s or 30s where you suddenly see your parents as just another adult like you mm-hmm. and you realize like, oh, gosh, you know, they 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 also had no idea what they're doing. Like right. you, you as a kid, you're like, oh, well, gosh, they're perfect. So if they make mistakes, they're, they're not making mistakes. They're deliberately evil because they have to be. But then suddenly you go, oh, gosh. You know, I remember being I remember being 25 going like, oh, my gosh, my mom had me at this age. Right. Like, well, I'm an idiot. I'm an absolute <laughs> idiot. Like, how did she know? When and yet she was I dead?
0: expected her to have yeah. everything figured out.
1: Exactly. And then you were I'm like, I'm, don't put any kids near me when I'm 25. I just <laughs> I'd, be, I'd ruin their lives instantly. <laughs> like, like. And then you go, like, oh, OK, well, maybe that's maybe that's how it is. And like to try and ascribe this, like, well, they're just evil because of the mistakes they made instead of the fact that they were twenty five. Right. And twenty five. them Just a little
0: bit of grace. Yeah.
1: You know what I mean? And then I, I think when you realize your parents are just another adult and, and look at the ages they were when different things are happening, you can have a bit more grace towards them and be a bit kinder and, and at least hold a more nuanced picture of how you were brought up or what you went through with them. And go, like, oh gosh, yeah. And, and also how a lot of them were just, especially my mom's generation, especially British people, my mom's generation, were incredibly emotionally repressed and didn't know how to talk about their feelings. And they were actually much better at it than their parents. But in my mind, I'm like, oh gosh, you guys never like communicated your feelings to me. It's like yeah. they did much yeah. better than their parents. And I'm not giving them credit. I'm going, oh, I managed to survive despite how evil they were. No, no, no. That's definitely not the story. Right. The story is. Right. They did their best and they did better than their parents' generation. And just because by today's standards it's not good enough doesn't mean they didn't try. And maybe that's enough. And maybe I can stop being so black and white about how I look at what they managed to do and didn't manage to do.
0: Right, right. And and not even today's standards. The standards that we ascribed to them when we were in our teens, who knew even less than they <laughs> yeah. did when they were, you know...
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, and it's, it was funny, you know, in talking to Linda, very similar things came up and she's like, look, you know, he was a blue collar guy surrounded by other blue collar guys. Yeah. You can't show emotion. You can't, you can't be touchy feely and huggy and you can't do that. You know, it yeah. was, it, that's not just not what they did then. And, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's wild. And then, and then you, you know, what you just brought in, you know, think about, you know, they were 25, they were 30 trying to figure it out. I mean, I remember when my dad turned 40, he couldn't even say it. He couldn't say 40. He was like, how are you, how old are you going to be? And he's like, Ooh, f-f-f-f-f-f. you know, he would just, he yeah. would make a joke out of it. And I was like, Jesus, wow. 40 was a dream for me. I'd, I would love to be back there. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that
1: funny? Yeah. Perspective. Jeez yeah and how those little things, just like a a, a photograph but the other thing my mom's got she played me were um, cassette tapes um, mm. which when when we left Zimbabwe and came back to the u k my dad had left with another woman um, and my mom would sit me down and get me to record audio messages for him that she'd post to him on cassette no. tapes no. So she's wow. playing me, my voice, as like a four-year-old wow. talking to my dad, sometimes asking him when he's coming home, thinking oh, how tough no, no. it's been for her. Oh, my God. Sitting there going, he's not coming home. I've told you this. You know this. And I keep asking or keep – like it's heartbreaking stuff. I bet. And you've suddenly got access to all this like – Yeah. And and having more compassion for my mom. Like Mm -hmm. in my head, I'm like, it's terrible for me that that happened to me. I'm like, gosh, not as difficult as it was for her. She's, she's stuck there losing the man of her dreams with two kids with him. One of whom is old enough to kind of realize what's going on. And he's trying to reach out thinking he's coming home and having the heartbreaking job of trying to repeatedly break it to your son. Your dad's not coming back must have been Unbearable. Oh my God.
0: Yeah. Worst yeah. groundhog day ever.
1: Yeah, exactly. This four year old going, yeah, but he's coming back today, right? No, no, no. Yeah, I've right. told you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. but we not he just today, did this like yesterday. Tomorrow, right? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> How do I explain more than a week to you? Like, right. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's, it's and I would up, imagine
0: yeah. that you, you were just in that sort of twilight period of, of you heard what she was saying, but there was still a big part of you that thought, if I just, if I just ask one more time, he'll come back.
1: Yeah. Or maybe she's wrong. Maybe she doesn't know he's doing because I don't know who knows what I don't know what conversations have been had. Mm -hmm. I just know he's not here at the moment. We're in a different country. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's coming back later. Maybe, you know, and it's that's I mean, any parent who's been through a divorce with a young kid. I mean, you know, this stuff, it's it's so difficult because you're dealing with something incredibly difficult. But you also know this is not going to hit the same way for them for a while. And you're going to have to drag everything out. You can't process it the same no. because you're probably processing it at the speed your child can process, which is much slower and in in like more bite-sized increments. Oh, it's got to be absolutely heartbreaking. Like I had a lot of compassion for it, like going through that stuff, going like this must have been an incredibly tough bit. And I haven't ha- I hadn't had that before. But all mm. these, all this memorabilia, all this like these videotapes, these audio recordings, these photographs suddenly – I could see her life and her experience and go like, yeah, okay, geez. It might've been tough for me, but it must've been awful for you. Absolutely awful, you know? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris everything in your favorite podcast app to get everything I release in one feed. If you like what you hear and you'd like to help others find it, we would love it if you'd leave a review or a rating wherever you listen and share the show on social media. You can support what I do more directly by tapping the donate button on my website at jeffreysadoris.com. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S scom And to those of you who have used that donate button, thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't tell you how much it means, and I'm so looking forward to sharing what your support is helping me make. So thank you again. You can connect with Sean on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Tuck, that's S-E-A-N-T-U-C-K, on his website at seantucker.photography, or by searching for Sean Tucker on YouTube. Connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Jeffrey Sidoris. And if you'd like to ask a question or offer feedback, or send us an audio note, you can email both of us at deepnatter at gmail.com. The music in this episode is from Artlist, which is a terrific resource for filmmakers, YouTubers, and podcasters. They've got vocal and instrumental tracks from virtually every genre. And if you use the link in the show notes, you can get two months free when you sign up for an annual subscription. As always, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your attention. And we hope you'll come back for the next one.